turn to the Old Testament this afternoon and read from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, reading the first 18 verses. Samuel uh, chapter 1 verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah rose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservants and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drank, drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaints and grief I have spoken until now. And Eli answered and said, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman uh, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the uh, Israelites were one of those uh, peoples back in the day that used to record uh, their history by way of story. And they considered that by recording the important events that happened to them, they would pass down to their children, they were noticing and celebrating what God was doing, the good and the bad. That God was clearly at work. He was divinely ordaining everything to come to pass. And he was involved. And because they were part of the story, they also were involved. 
And so they collected these stories as a way of encouraging them to follow in, in God's ways. Um, to worship him, to trust him, look back in your, in your history. You know, they would say to their sons and daughters, it's the same God who parted the Red Sea, who took your forefathers out of Egypt. It's the same God. Like, he's been trustworthy in the past. You can trust him now. This is a covenantal kind of, kind of mindset. And to the, to the delight of, I remember being a, a youngster myself, and to the young ones here, I hope, these stories have been recorded for us. And the good and the bad. There's some pretty ugly stuff, some pretty tough stuff to go through, and some pretty beautiful stuff as well. It's full of, I mean, it's full of drama. First and second Samuel are huge. The point, though, that we find ourselves at, though, in, in Israelite history is not when Israel's at her best. So she'd been taken out of slavery in Egypt. They head to the Red Sea. They seem to be trapped. God parts the Red Sea. They end up being disobedient. They're 40 years in the wilderness. Most of the generation passes away. There's a new generation ready to enter the promised land. There's all sorts of enemies. God defeats their enemies. They pass over the Jordan River. That also is parted. And now they're established in Israel. By the time of the judges, now kind of overlapping somewhat with the time of uh, first and, well, the life of Eli and, and Hannah and Samuel was a time of just terrible spiritual decline. I mean, if you know judges at all, the mantra in judges is there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That, that wasn't a good thing. Um, and at this point, this is when Hannah's struggling, and this is when Samuel is about to be born. It's a time in which Israel is getting to the point where she's losing her identity as the people of God. We sung from Psalm 67, this, this cry for the Lord to, for the nations to come to God. That's what Israel, that's why Israel was in the world, to be a light to the nations. And God was going to form this beachhead of his kingdom in the world. And from there, the light would go out. Jesus would come as an Israelite. And through his death and resurrection, it wouldn't just be for his own people. It would be for his people from every tribe and nation. They are on the brink of losing that identity totally. Of no longer being recognizable as the people of God in distinction from the pagans all around them, worshiping all kinds of, of other gods. But thankfully, this is the story that, not the story that we've written, not the story that's dependent on our faithfulness, but the story that God has, has written. Robert Alter is a pretty well-known Hebrew scholar. I think he's passed away now. As far as I know, he never became a believer, but he studied the Old Testament. He was an expert in it. And one time he was in conversation uh, with, with uh, a radio host who was a believer, and they were talking about the topic of the Old Testament. And I remember this from that interview. Uh, Robert Alter said, Sometimes the biblical stories are so unbelievably beautiful, it makes me think that maybe the Bible is true. And I hope that resonates with, with your hearts. The way that the Lord has revealed himself, his plans, his purposes, in the context of the exciting stories of the Old Testament. I hope that's something that resonates with you, excites you, in terms of how the Lord is uh, revealing himself to us. And he may have been thinking about the story of Hannah and the birth of Samuel. 
Now, here's a surprise because you probably know First and Second Samuel is telling the story of David, the great King David. And, you know, we kind of get there through some meandering paths through Saul, this, this king that Israel wanted, but really wasn't the kind of king that God wanted, all the way to Samuel coming to Jesse's uh, door, knocking in the door, uh, I'm here to anoint a king, can I see your sons? And he brings them all of his, his older and wiser and experienced ones, and Samuel says, none of them fit the bill, do you have any more boys? And David's off tending the sheep. They call for David, and Samuel anoints David. And the kids here, favorite stories, right? David and Goliath. I mean, David and Saul, David and Jonathan, some, you know, just kind of drama-altering, big-time stories when you think about Old Testament, and then also foreshadowing the coming of David's son, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. But that's not how Samuel opens. It doesn't open in the tabernacle. I mean, it has a place in our story, but it doesn't open in some capital city. It doesn't open with somebody on a throne. It doesn't happen with somebody in any, having any kind of uh, political, military, commercial power at all. In fact, 1 Samuel begins with a really sad, despairing, depressed lady on her knees. That's pretty significant. When stories start that way, the author's telling us something. And the uh, ultimate author, the Holy Spirit, is, is telling us something. So, right in the center of the book of Judges, you had the book of Ruth, right? A Moabite widow who's like one of the most interesting and important characters in the Old Testament. And now we have a barren, a barren wife. <clears throat> but a woman of faith called Hannah. So our theme here this afternoon is listening for the voice of God. And I want to notice three different voices at work in Hannah's life. Uh, first of all, there's a rather negative voice called, she has a name, her name's Penina. Second, there's a more positive voice, it's the voice of her husband. But finally, we're going to look at the voice of God in, in Hannah's life. So first of all, the voice of Peninnah, which we could call a voice of accusation within Hannah's life. So we're introduced to one man in one city, and we have a number of his, of his uh, generations that are recorded, uh, simply telling us that this was a known commodity. This was a man who was known, respected in the community. They could trace him back. Yeah, that's Alcana. He's the son of such and such and such and such. We, we know that family going back uh, many, many generations and uh, he's, he's a faithful, he's a faithful Israelite. He, every year where there's a festival, there's a feast, he's taking his family. Uh, he's leading them to worship. Any godly father does, leads his family uh, into, into worship. And there's all kind of pagan altars, even in Israel at that point, to go to. But he goes up uh, in verse 3 uh, to, to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle was. That's where the... Holy of Holies was. We're told that's where Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas uh, were. That's where they were ministering. These are people called, called by God. This is the official place to come and bring your offerings, to come and worship, uh, come, and, come and celebrate, come and know that you're forgiven uh, from your sins. So he, in that sense, he's a godly, respected man. Now, the moment we read that he had two wives, 
we know there's, there's also a problem uh, because certainly that wasn't God's intent uh, from, from the beginning. And just because we know, it, uh, it's, it's one thing, for example, for my wife to put up with me, one husband, uh, to have to have put up with two. I mean, that is just asking for, uh, for trouble, right, in the home. We do have to understand though, a little bit of the culture of that day, a lot of pressure uh, for your wife to have, to have babies. Now, we have, we have some of those pressures uh, today. And, uh, and certainly that, that pushes us to have particular understanding and sympathy towards those who would love to have children but can't. But even more difficult back in those days. The way in which a woman serves not only her her husband and his business, the family business, uh, which required daughters, but most especially sons, to keep the family business going. Because if you're a guy here, or if you're a girl, and you're, uh, you're wondering what you want to do, perhaps choose some sort of career path, you like to go into, uh, you like to go into law, or you like to go into medicine of some kind, or you like to go into bookkeeping or whatever, you have all sorts of options. If you were the son of a carpenter, you were going to be a carpenter 90-90% of the time. You had your, the nice thing is you had your career chosen out for you and a business probably already uh, in, in place. So the family depended on having boys in particular, the military of the country for defense from other nations that might want to attack Israel were dependent upon families in Israel having boys so that they could go and defend uh, the homeland. And so one of the main roles in which a woman could serve her community is have babies and in particular, Lord willing, have at least some sons. And in fact, this is how women were heroes. That was the cultural expectation that you could provide. And there was a sense of accomplishment, a sense of um, a sense of belong- a sense of identity. Not not simply in being a woman or a member of covenant people or a wife, but it had become for sure a hero because you were bearing children. And Hannah felt this. And she didn't just feel it because she was the wife of Achana and, and the Lord had shut her womb, but because Peninnah, the second wife, whom Elkanah took because of his desire to have children and, and, and Hannah's inability, would remind her every chance she got of her fulfillment, of her identity compared to Hannah. There was even a sense in that culture, sadly, that if you could not produce children, you were a failure, not just to your people, but to God. Suspicious that you have probably, you had probably done something sinful uh, to have earned such, um, such a curse. It's a terrible, <laughs> an awful situation for, for, uh, for a woman in, in Israel. I, I kind of connected a little bit to a leper in Israel. <laughs> where uh, the way that they were treated. Every time you come across a leper, they're supposed to cry out unclean. They're supposed to keep themselves. There's a sense that, that God is cursing them for something that they've done. Can you imagine? Uh, through no fault of your own, uh, being barren, being a leper, having, having some something as a part of who you are, where people are now identifying you as a failure. Well, Hannah got 
right in, right in her own household. And I expect that she lived in a different part of the house or she had a different, different house. Alcana seems to be rather uh, wealthy and successful. But every year they went up to Shiloh to worship in the tabernacle. That's when Peninnah let her have it. You know, maybe some kids would ask, where are Hannah's children? And Peninnah would, would just, she doesn't, she doesn't bear children. She can't fulfill Elkanah's needs like I can. And every chance she, caught, she took to, uh, to make Hannah miserable, as we read in verse, in verse 6, she provoked her uh, severely. So we have miserable Hannah. We have weeping Hannah. And this... This voice of Peninnah in Hannah's life was a constant trial. It's the voice of, it's the voice of accusation. Something's wrong with you. It's the voice of, of cultural expectation. It says you are not, you're not meeting up to what the culture, the kind of person the culture says you should be. And it's most likely your fault. It's the voice that says your, your identity is tied up in bearing children. That's like your, your deepest identity. It's a negative voice in Hannah's life. It's, it's, a, it's a constant trial. But before we move on, just notice it is not the voice that Hannah is going to allow to identify her. It's not the voice that is going to, for, for Hannah, capture who she is. So that's the voice of accusation, the voice of, of Penina. Secondly, we have the voice of Elkanah, which is a, a much more positive voice, no doubt about it. We could call it the voice of human affection, uh, the voice of romantic attention, the voice of friendship in, uh, in Hannah's life. Godly man, a godly uh, husband, we read that Hannah would give a double portion in verse 5 uh, for he loved Hannah. So we get the sense that Hannah is Elkanah's sweetheart. He's the one that, that, that he, she's the one that he ran after. He wooed her. He won her. It's only after she could not bear children that he went to Peninnah. But his, his heart cry is for Hannah. His delights. Is, is in this wife of his youth, his sweetheart. And he, he, he found ways to, in her sorrow, to identify just how special and important she was. Nobody could ever take her place. So they go up and they'd sacrifice in Shiloh. They'd bring an animal up from the flock and the priest would take it and, and, and kill it and part of it would be offered to the Lord, the best parts, but that whatever was left, the family would... Uh, would have a feast with. And so they'd stay in Shiloh and they would celebrate with neighbors and friends and family members and the like. And so Alcana's slicing the roast and everybody sees. Penina, her 20 kids or whatever, they all get a portion. They all get one portion. And Hannah always gets two portions. So Alcana is going out of his way to sympathize and identify with this sorrowing woman. He's not distancing himself. Other husbands did that. There's a sense you could divorce your wife, you know, if 
She was unable to bear children for you. And Elkanah was not that kind of, of man. He was not that kind of, of God follower. Um, he's a man who displayed his standing with her. He's a, it's a, somewhat of a Christ a figure in the book of Samuel, where he comes down and he identifies with the lowly. And he's willing to take flack. You know, I can imagine Elkanah would, would, uh, would take some flack for, for siding with Hannah and supporting her and even treating her with, with special, special affection and, and love. And so you can kind of understand her uh, or his hurt in verse 8. Hannah, why do you weep? And this, this special portion, why do you not eat? And why are you, why is your heart grieved? He, he, had, he had enough knowledge of his wife, enough intimate knowledge of her that it, it's, not just, it's not just her outside, he, he could read her heart. Her heart was grieved. Am I not better to you than ten sons? I know you don't have the love and affection and the, the reward and the sense of fruitfulness that others have in Israel, but you do have me, and you're not going to lose me. Like, how, how, can, I, how can I prove to you that you've got, you've got emotional, psychological, and financial support for the rest of your life? Because that's huge, right, for, uh, for a woman in that society to know that your future was, was secure. And we kind of feel his, his heart uh, and, and pain a little bit, but I, I do sense there's a little bit of the lost of the lost husband here who doesn't quite understand uh, what what his wife is going through. Uh, oftentimes, uh, we husbands have been found to say things that we mean to be helpful, but don't necessarily really capture what our wives are going through. There are moments when we you start nodding, I'm sure. We start to fix situations rather than just listen and sympathize. Slowly but surely, we get, we get keyed into that. We learn um, by God's grace. But his solution to her grief, to her sorrow, to her suffering, is to tell her and assure her of his human affection. And... I mean, this is necessary in any marriage. This is, uh, this is an ideal husband in many ways. This uh, romantic affection, this financial security. Guys, if you're taking notes on how to be a good husband, this is, this is all really good stuff. But I do want to say that Hannah is not driven by the negative voice of Peninnah. This voice that says, here's who you are. Here's who you deserve to be. You'll never be better than this. You'll never match up to what culture demands. But she also will not fully be satisfied with the voice of human affection. That says, you, you belong here in this home. This is, what, this is what you've got. This is who you are. You are, you are the wife of Elkanah. I mean, this is a big deal. I'm willing to go out of my way to make sure everybody knows it and nobody challenges it. It's big, it's positive, but that also is not, is not enough for Hannah. She doesn't want that to be what fully 
and finally identifies her in her core, who she is. So finally, this, uh, this afternoon, the voice of God in, in Hannah's life. And the voice of God is there because she goes into the tabernacle. And uh, in the tabernacle was a place not only of sacrifice, but a place also of teaching. It was a, pr- it was a place of prayer. It's a place of worship. We're, uh, you know, we're uh, ancestors or we're uh, inheriting that worship in the tabernacle. It's different, of course, now. Uh, Jesus is the temple, but uh, we're here worshiping just like our brothers and sisters in uh, the Old Testament. And not only in the tabernacle, but also in the sacraments where she saw the voice of God, heard the voice of God, saw the action of God in an animal being sacrificed, in God receiving that sacrifice, and God declaring that you're forgiven. And so when she's unable to know who she is, based on what's going on in, in Elkanah's home, the voices of Peninnah and the voices of Elkanah, she goes to the tabernacle. And I don't know if you noticed it, but um, we hear the voice of God, his will, even in her being barren. It says twice, verses 5 and 6, that the Lord had closed her womb. Some of the children here might remember a number of Old Testament uh, heroes of the faith that were barren. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. Think about New Testament, about uh, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, before he was conceived and born, Elizabeth was, was barren. But this, this, is, this is the one time uh, in the scriptures where we read that the Lord was the one who had closed the womb, specifically God is, God is at work including this negative providence of closing her womb in, in, a, in a time and age, as we've seen, in which that was incredibly difficult and confusing and sorrowful for her. And, and there, there's something about his voice in her life that she wants to crowd out all of those other voices that competes for who she is, what her identity actually is. And so she goes to the only place where she feels she might receive actual deep-rooted, soul-filling consolation. She goes to the tabernacle. Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Alcana's disappointed because she's not eating and drinking. But they're all finished. And it's like right after that, right after his question, she goes to the tabernacle to seek after, after God. And it's like, it's like her, uh, if you've seen somebody who's, who's sick with the disease, one of the hardest things to see is them failing in their appetite. You know, they're losing weight. Like they should have an appetite, they should be eating, but they're not. And it's her lack of an appetite is, is a symbol for what she's experiencing, her heart sickness, her lack of soul health and well-being, her, her sense of being whole. And this too is a part of God's, God's 
providence, part of God's voice in her life. There's something wrong. You need something more, even than Elkanah's love and affection. So she comes. And uh, Eli's not much help because she's pouring out her heart. I wonder how often Eli had seen someone pouring out their heart with such intensity and such pleading and such obvious human need. I don't think he necessarily saw very many women there at all. It was generally a man's thing to do to go up to the tabernacle to pray and bring sacrifices on behalf of, of the people. And he's kind of thrown, like she's praying silently, but she's mouthing the words. You ever done that? Ever been down so low that all you could do is kind of mumble, mumble out some words of petitioning after God and pleading after him and just asking God for, for help? And you get so desperate that for the first time in, in your life, you actually, maybe you actually articulate it out loud. You go off to the woods and you just ask God what's going on. Those are actually really good signs that the Lord is at work in your life. And, uh, and in this marvelous story, it's the voice of God alone that satisfies her. It's, it's, it's the voice alone that's big enough and satisfying enough and glorious enough to fill the emptiness, the brokenness in her heart, the shame and the agony and the sadness and the loneliness of her existence. I wonder if you noticed it. Eli tells her, eventually he, he uh, fulfills his office, <laughs> counsels her like a, a pastor should do. Go in peace, the God of Israel, grant your petition which you have asked of him. And then she leaves. And in verse 18, she went her way and she ate. And her face was no longer sad. Her, her exterior... Uh, complexion and, 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 and what she was kind of articulating by her actions, they changed. Even though her experience of having a son had not yet changed, we don't find out yet until afterwards that the Lord visits her and she conceives and her and Akana have a son named Samuel. Because in the temple, not only did she ask God for a son, which is something she must have prayed for and longed after and dreamt of night after night after night, day after day. My, my life would finally have meaning, satisfaction, if only I have a son. You and I struggle with those if onlys. Those, those, the way we could finish sentences. If only I had this. If only this happened in my past. If only this would happen tomorrow. If only this person was either in my life or out of my life, I would be happy and satisfied. I think Hannah, she's human. No doubt she, that was a mantra that, that played itself over and over again in her mind. But this time, she asked for the son, but she says, I'm going to give this son back to you. She actually says that her son will take a Nazarite vow, which is a, a vow of service to stay in the temple and serve after the baby is weaned. And that's what happens. Samuel is born. Samuel is weaned. He goes and he is trained by Eli. And eventually, Eli and his family die out, are punished. And Samuel becomes that, that leader, that pre, um, pre-king leader and 
prophet and priest in, um, in Israel. But she demonstrates, even in her request, that's not ultimately this exciting dream that she's always wanted, this, this fulfillment of all the if-onlys in her life, if I have a son. But the sense is, if, if I have you, if I know that you're on my side, God, if I know that all will be well, give me a son so that I can give him to you. But even before she has that son, Having been in the presence of God, having listened to the voice of God, having that voice impact her heart, impact her soul, heal her, deliver her from her sadness and loneliness, she comes down and she eats, and her face is no longer sad. I, I always like this text, and I think it's Acts 4, where um, uh, Peter and, and James are being persecuted for the faith. And they're in Jerusalem, I think, still, and, and they're being arrested, um, or at least threatened to be arrested. And, uh, and they start to give a, a defense of their faith. And it's eloquent, like it's, these guys are fishermen, and yet this, there's eloquent. And, and, and then we read, they could tell that they had been with Jesus. It was clear that based on what they were saying, based on their confidence, based on their joy, they had been with Jesus. And so there's a sense here that Hannah has been in the presence of God. And it's clear on her face, it's clear in her attitude that something has changed, even though she doesn't yet have, have that son. Well, ultimately, Hannah's, Hannah's longing after God, longing to hear his voice impact and change and comfort and, and uh, heal her heart, her soul, was a longing for the Lord Jesus Christ. She didn't know that yet. She knows that now. <laughs> And Elkanah's, you know, plea, am I not better than ten sons, is echoed in the way that Jesus came and presented himself as a sacrifice in our place. Better than ten sons. But we could turn that around even more. When in fact, the way that Jesus conducted himself, the way that he gave himself for us, we might even imagine him saying, based on my death, based on my life, based on the suffering that I've gone through, are you clearly not of more value than my suffering, than my grief? For your sake, he became poor. He who was rich, for your sake, became poor. The son who gave up the glories of heaven in order to bear the burden of, of our sin. Despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted uh, with our grief. A little bit better than Eli in the tabernacle. Not, not quite sure who this drunk woman is. But one who is acquainted with all of our griefs. One who is in his, in his three years on earth, especially in his suffering at the end, in his death. He shouts loud and clear that we are of more value than all of that. All of the lies, all of the mockery, all of the doubts, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you really are, you saved others, you can't save yourself. In the face of that, Jesus stays because he sees us of more value 
then reaping, wreaking revenge on his enemies right there. More value than those, the pain of those nails uh, through his hands and feet. More value than, than the crown of thorns pressed into his skull. That pain was worth it because of how much he valued you and me. So Hannah's womb was closed. It had been closed by God for a time, for a purpose, but her heart and her soul, through her suffering, became open to the voice of God. There's big, epic scenes coming up in 1st and 2nd Samuel. Scenes that uh, you, know, you remember, celebrate, but just remember... It all began with a sad, lonely, despairing, tearful, broken woman on her knees. That's how this book begins. That's how the Holy Spirit says, this is how this story is going to begin. Pay attention. This is where I want you. <laughs> and really, you know, David in the story is not really us. David in the story is 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 Jesus, the warrior, the king, the shepherd. I mean, he's the big hero. We're people like um, Alcana and, and Hannah struggling, but by God's grace, people of faith listening for the voice of God. So let me in conclusion ask what voices you're listening to right now. And what voices are you going to listen to this coming week? What voices will you allow to penetrate your heart and soul to say, to say those voices articulate, those voices capture who I am. There will be the voice of, of accusation this week. There's no doubt about it. It feels like the culture, our society is, is, uh, is, is messing with us more and more. Pushing us. Trying to push us into uh, its mold. I don't know what you've been through. There may be some here who have experienced abuse. Years of being uh, bullied. Those voices of accusation of pushing you under can last for a long time. Or just the voice of the world's opposition. The voice of cultural expectations that says, if you don't dress like this, you don't act like this, you don't belong in our society. If you believe these things... If you still believe that old dusty book called the Bible, you don't really belong. Cultural pressures to conform are enormous. How does Hannah deal with those voices? Well, on her knees, in the presence of God. Or how about the voice of human affection? A more powerful, I mean, a more uh, comforting and positive voice. But we cannot find our ultimate satisfaction and purpose identity um, even in the the welcome voices of romantic affection uh, human friendship as good and powerful as that is the amount of attention we get from others we cannot judge who we are how often we do that right even before God we judge how much God loves us by how good our performance was and that's, that's not lasting, that's not soul-satisfying, that's not heart 
healing. Ultimately, that's not how Hannah sees herself, how she identifies herself. She doesn't put off the voice of human affection, but that's not what is at her deepest core. So your most important conversations this week will be with, will be with God. It will be with the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be in, um, it will be in conversation with him through his word and in prayer, where you find yourself whole again, where you find your, the confusion starting to fade away, where the disorientation that we feel so often in this world of brokenness, this world in which we constantly do struggle with the if-onlys of life, where we rest ourselves in God, in His voice, in His presence, in His will, in His word to us, and in particular, in how much He has proven Himself to you in Jesus' uh, life and death and resurrection. John 10, um, after Jesus gathered his own little flock, he walks ahead of him. And he says in John 10, uh, they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They'll run away from him because they don't know his voice. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in the sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Let the voice of your father listen, listen carefully. Put yourself, put yourself in the hearing of his voice through scripture and prayer, through meditation, and concentrating on the things of God. And let those direct, encourage, comfort, guide, and preserve you this week. Let's pray together.